Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. A few times on this show, we've talked about cancer. In episode 136, we interviewed Siddhartha Mukherjee about the history of cancer. Then in 2019, I talked to Azra Raza and explored her views about how we're studying cancer in the wrong way. Now, 18 months or so into a pandemic, I'm a bit tired of sitting on my hands, and I feel the urge to do something. That's why I was compelled to interview Dr. Katherine Schmitz. She's a past president of the American College of Sports Medicine and the director of the Oncology, Nutrition, and Exercise Group at the Penn State Cancer Institute. And she has just written a book that essentially is a guide to how to strategically use exercise and strength training to help people fight cancer and recover from it. And normally, I'm not one for self-help books, nor am I one to follow the kinds of guidance that I see in a book written like this. But the thing that I found really compelling is that she backs it up with a lot of science. She's got some 280 publications to her name, and she's pioneered a lot of the really big studies, really well-run, randomized clinical trials to evaluate the effectiveness of exercise in people with cancer. So if I'm going to listen to anyone, it's going to be her. Dr. Katherine Schmitz, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much for having me. Delighted to be with you. We on this show talk a lot about what are some of the ways in which exercise can be helpful to us. You know, we've talked about exercise and memory and the brain. And, you know, one of the things that I really thought was was interesting about your book and your approach is that it kind of, I mean, we kind of know that there's this idea that if you have like, say, a back injury, it's not a great idea to rest it for too long, right? Which used to be the advice. But when it comes to chemotherapy or cancer, that seems to be like a whole other can of worms. I can understand how exercise would be preventative, but I really wanted to get your, you know, just talk to you about how we thread this needle between, you know, asking someone who's going through these really challenging medical procedures and like telling them we need to exercise too. 
So really, let's be honest, right, about the fact that going through uh, chemotherapy and radiation, going through cancer treatments of any kind stinks and is really hard, right? So why, why am I so mean? <laughs> why am I suggesting that people who are going through something that is so hard should do something else that people generally perceive as hard as well? So here's, here's the truth. The truth is that we can predict really reliably that people who are going through cancer treatment will lose muscle, will gain fat, will lose cardiovascular function, will lose pulmonary function. Their immune systems are not as strong at the end of it. They're in a more inflamed state at the end of it. Their vascular system is altered in a negative way because of it. So, you know, not only are you going through something hard, but it is doing bad things to you. Now, they're doing those bad things in the name of treating your cancer. So it's not like somebody's just evil genius in the corner deciding to do evil things to you. But what we know is that if you are willing to move, if you are willing to do some exercise, you know, we're not talking about running a 5K. If you're willing to do some exercise as you're going through the treatment, you will attenuate all of those adverse effects of cancer treatment that we can very reliably predict. And we know that. So let's be honest about the fact that what I'm saying is, yep, I know what you're doing is hard during your cancer treatment. But what I'm telling you is at the end of it, you're going to feel like you aged a decade in the period of time that you go through your cancer treatment. And there is something that you can do while you're going through your cancer treatment that can help you with that, that can prevent that from occurring. And that's exercise. And, you know, that one of the things that I was really impressed with in terms of right from the beginning in your book, you you start talking about data <laughs> and that this is an advice that is just given by someone who, A, has no experience, uh, because you also mentioned that your your life partner um, went through, a, you know, a serious, aggressive cancer treatment. And you start with saying, and this is also not something that we haven't known for almost 100 years. So I'd like to sort of start from the beginning historically in terms of the research behind when we knew that, you know, like, I think you cited a study from the 1930s that exercise might have benefits and, and, and how, how we know that. Because I think a lot of people say, look, of course, the people who exercise do better they are responding to treatment better or they feel better or, you know, there's all these other confounds. But in fact, you describe randomized controlled trials that still show these effects. So, so let's start with like the 1930s, what do we know? And then more recently, how that's been updated. So actually, it goes back to 1918. The first study that I was able to find was actually an epidemiologic study that basically showed that if we looked at a time when we were, you know, really shifting in our society from everybody doing uh, manual labor to more and more people, especially more wealthy people, having desk jobs. What they basically found was that cancer incidence was actually lower in a cohort in Minnesota among people who had active jobs as compared to people who were sedentary. So that was Dr. Ewing back in I want to say 1918, but I, I could be off by a few years there. But then in the 1930s and again in the 40s and the 50s, there were a series of, of experiments that were done in animals 
And I'd like to quote one in particular that was done at the Wistar Institute, very, very famous basic science cancer center in Philadelphia. And, you know, all of these studies had similar sort of um, packaging around them. And the idea was that exercise was going to be used as a stressor. And the, you know, investigators were basically saying, look at how bad stress is for the body. Look at how this is going to cause cancer. Look at how this is going to make the cancer grow quicker. And over and over again, in these one-off studies that were never followed up on, it's kind of funny to sort of go back and find four or five of them through, you know, 20 or 30 years that said, huh, that's weird. Exercise actually made the tumor grow smaller. Huh, that's weird. The animals that were given the exercise, which was the stressor, actually did better. They were less likely to develop the cancer. They were less likely to die of their cancer. So we see this over and over again in these animal studies where it was counter to what the investigators thought they were going to see to begin with. So that, that really speaks to that issue that you were talking about, about, you know, we used to believe that rest was best for backs. And, you know, sometime in the 1980s, we figured out, that in fact, no, that was the wrong answer for people with back pain. And so now we have a culture around cancer that says rest, rest, rest. And we need to change that culture. We need to see in our mind's eye people who have bald heads and wigs, who look a little waxy, frankly, uh, taking a walk, you know, uh, doing some weight training. Um, It would be really, really good for us to change that culture. So let's talk a little bit about the the sort of more recent, more randomized trials, because those are the ones that I found really compelling ultimately. Tell us a little bit about sort of how the trials were set up and what the findings were. The first thing to say is that there are at this point well over a thousand randomized controlled trials that have been completed in the area of exercise and cancer in human beings. So there's a lot of data out there. But uh, the first trials were done in humans in the late 1980s by some nursing researchers at the Ohio State University. But since that time, the field has grown exponentially, and that is not hyperbole, it really just grown exponentially. And what we now know is that if we go back and look at hundreds of evidence, which means we're not just looking at one trial, we're looking at at least five trials, and they have to be consistent, and the effects have to be greater than tiny, and they have to be meaningful, and uh, all of those things have eight cancer health-related outcomes, symptom side effects, for which we have really beautiful randomized controlled trial evidence to show effects. And they are cancer-related fatigue, very counterintuitive, I know, there it is. Cancer-related fatigue, ask me why, after I finish giving you the list. Physical function, breast cancer-related lymphedema, bone health, sleep, anxiety, depression, and quality of life. So all of these are things that we know are improved in people during and after their cancer treatment by being more physically active. So I think we get, you know, anxiety, depression, you know, we've, we, we understand exercise boosts endorphins and that sort of seems to make a lot of sense. But yeah, there are two that stand out in that list that I'm, that make me scratch my head. The first of course is the fatigue, as you mentioned. So, you know, is it just a matter of when you're exercising that actually allows you to sleep better? And so you get more restful sleep or what, what's the connection? It's not actually through sleep, though that certainly would be a corollary. Um, 
We believe that the mechanism that mostly underlies the effect of exercise on cancer-related fatigue is inflammation. So think about when you're feeling ill, when you're feeling sort of sick, um, that feeling of sort of feeling achy and chills and whatnot. What's happening in your body at that point is you have an elevation of acute inflammation. And exercise training is absolutely terrific for reducing inflammation. And there is some evidence from Dr. Julie Bauer that shows that one of the mechanisms through which exercise would have its effect on cancer-related fatigue is through reduced inflammation. Huh. And do we know, that is there like a particular kind of exercise that is it more cardiovascular or more weight training? What, what is sort of more effective? I'm so glad you asked. There's a really, really important paper that was written on exactly the topic that you are asking about in 2017. Dr. Karen Lucien, who's from University of Rochester, did a really important meta-analysis looking at the hundreds, not kidding, hundreds of randomized controlled trials that had been done to that point on the topic of physical activity and, and T. And what she was able to show was that it didn't matter whether you did yoga or whether you did walking or whether you did weight training or whether it was in a group or whether it was individual or whether it was at home or in a facility, that there was equal benefit across a broad variety of different settings and intensities and types of physical activity. And further, very, very importantly, she actually compared the efficacy of an exercise program for changing fatigue to the efficacy of drugs that are on the market for cancer-related fatigue. And exercise won. Exercise was better than any drug on the market for addressing cancer-related fatigue. It is the number one recommended treatment for cancer-related fatigue from the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. I mean, this all sort of reminds me so much of a lot of the work that I often talk about or or get asked about, which is my area of sort of expertise in neuroscience is, is learning and memory. And so a lot of people ask about, you know, what can we do to cure memory degenerative disorders like, you know, Alzheimer's disease? And and I keep coming back to, you know, forget the brain training tools. Exercise is a really powerful tool. And time and time again, you put it into these trials and yeah, it has just as significant effect, if not a bigger effect. So it, 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 you know, in some ways, it doesn't surprise me too that some of some of these same findings transfer over in in the, the cancer literature. And one of the things I think is a real benefit of the pandemic is just this proliferation of online exercise tools that now kind of open up access. Because I imagine that if you are going through cancer treatments, one of the issues is going to be, you know, you're probably not as mobile as you once were. You probably have a lot more constraints on your time. So getting access to an app or even something that you can do at home that is guided and that helps take the decision fatigue away from like, what do I do next, you know, is probably really helpful. Are you seeing any of these tools being, you know, used specifically in populations of people with cancer? Yes, absolutely. So um, during the height of COVID, Make Tree Cancer Alliance um, went completely, which is, you know, one of the several providers of exercise oncology uh, interventions in the U.S., they went entirely virtual and they were able to show that they could get just the same kind of physiological effects in cancer patients training virtually with trainers as in person. Too unstoppable 
And number two, and the word unstoppable.org is an organization online that is specifically for women who have had cancer. And they have a number of, of virtual programs that I think are really high quality. There's a website that goes with my book called lilycookcancer.com. And there's a number of virtual uh, you know, programs, including chair exercise sessions that are available online. If people buy the book, they can sign up through my website for uh, what I like to call Peloton for Cancer Survivors, which is My Victory, another really high quality platform with over 3,000 high quality videos that you know, can be titrated various different levels of what people are capable of doing. One of the things that you didn't say, and that I will uh, speak about, is the virtual world is really a much safer place for a cancer patient receiving treatment to be because of uh, infection risk. Um, and I'm not talking COVID. I'm just talking about, you know, just generally speaking, not a great idea to take somebody who's immune compromised and have them lifting dumbbells that have been lifted by 20 other people who haven't washed their hands, right? Yeah, or sweating in a room where they make it hot specifically right. just, yeah. Right. Yeah, right. It's, that's gross now, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. there you go. We're all gross down now. <laughs> yeah, and, and I should say that, I, I'll repeat this again, I said at the top of the show, your book really very much is a practical guide to how to implement, you know, some of this research and in, in your own in, in a person's own journey. And it's and it's just loaded with really helpful strategies and workout kind of itineraries and, and all of that kind of stuff. So so that that's, you know, thank you. It was yes. actually inspired the tone and level at which I wrote the book was inspired by a uh, friend and colleague, Liz O'Riordan, who is a uh, breast surgeon in the UK. And she said to me when I was talking to her about the book that during her treatment, she was, you know, breast cancer survivor as well as a breast surgeon. And, you know, she said during her treatment, there were days she couldn't remember how to spell the word potato. So I thought, uh, the book has to be readable by somebody who can't remember how to spell the word potato today. Okay, got it. Let's go. Yeah. And also, you know, I really think that one of the major hurdles of exercise is that, you know, people say, okay, I'm going to do 45 minutes of exercise. And if you don't have a plan that's really taxing cognitively, you know, I mean, to me, this, uh, the revelation was when I started doing like group exercise classes or even like in my 30s, I started, I joined like a master swim team and like I was terrible. Like people in my lane were 50 years older than me and they were you know, they were lapping me. Right. But like every every morning when I got to the pool, there was a list of like the things I had to do. And all I had to do was get through that list and I would have had a good workout. And there's no way I would have done that same amount of you know exercise if it wasn't for that list. I think you really hit the nail on the head with decision fatigue, because I think the other thing that happens for people as they're going through their cancer treatment is that there are decisions to be made and there are hard decisions to be made. There are things like, you know, my own Sarah, you know, had decisions to make all along the way about, you know, how are they going to handle the reconstructive surgery? Was it at the same time? Was it after radiation? Was she going to have a hole in her face for six months or was she going to have a giant blob on her face while she was going through her chemo? You know, she wasn't even supposed to do the chemo to begin with. And then they came back to her and said, well, what do you want to do? It looks to us like you might need to do this. But, you know, there are decisions to make on your treatment. People who are going through cancer, their doctors don't necessarily, I mean, I think people understand this if they've not been through it. They don't necessarily just get handed their treatment plan. They have decisions to make. 
You know, they have like, well, do you want to do your surgery this way or that way? Shall we do the chemo first or not? We're at equipoise. What do you think? And, you know, so decision fatigue is a big deal in the context of going through cancer and surviving cancer. So if you can be handed an exercise program and it's like, oh, good, I don't have to think about it. I'm just going to do this. It can really take a load off. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. The legends are true! Overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny! Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. So one of the other um, things that we uh, haven't talked about yet, which I I, I do want to talk about in terms of what exercise can do, um, is that you mentioned uh, breast cancer-related lymphedema. So what is that and how does exercise help? So your lymph system is your second circulation. So you think of your circulation and what you're generally thinking of as your blood, but there is a second circulatory system in the body called the lymphatic system. It's interesting because, you know, if you go back to your fifth grade biology, You've probably learned about all of your organs and many different body parts and systems, but they probably didn't say anything about the lymph system. So what I'm saying right now might be brand new to some people that are listening to this. So your lymph system is there as part of your immune system and as part of your circulatory system to move fluids. So one of the things that it does, it doesn't have a pump like the heart. So it's just a return system. It's a vascular system that returns fluid from the periphery, which means you know, your fingers and toes and the top of your head, all the way back to your heart. And the other thing that it does exceptionally well is it helps to clear junk, whether the junk be, you know, dead cells, bacteria, debris, whatever it might be, it might, you know, clear it from the tissues and sort of as kind of a vacuum cleaner, if you will. And it's intended to do this with great specificity. So, for example, you might have a lymph node in your armpit that serves your left thumb and your left pointer finger, right? And you might have a different lymph node that serves your pinky finger and and ring finger. And if by chance, in the process of having breast cancer, 
they renew the lymph node that serves your thumb and your pointer finger, then when you cut your finger while you are making dinner or gardening, there is bacteria that gets in there. And now the whole communication system that says, oh, hey, there's a cut here. We need to respond to this is interrupted. So one of the things that can happen is that that lymphatic system can back up on itself. And it could be, it's not necessarily a cut. It could be a sunburn. It could be, you know, bumping your arm hard. So point is that breast cancer related lymphedema is an increase in swelling in the arm or on the, on the torso on the side where breast cancer was treated. That is a backup of lymphatic fluid because the system got changed because there were lymph nodes removed as a part of treatment. And so what we know about exercise and breast cancer related lymphedema actually comes largely from my work, from my own randomized controlled trials. And so you can think about this and think, oh, okay, well, lymphedema doesn't like inflammation. It doesn't like to be to, for the system to be stressed. And so you would think, okay, well, rest it then, right? Well, let's go back to that earlier conversation we had about the back. Let's go back to the even earlier conversation that we, that we had as a society about rest and the heart. It used to be that we told people with heart disease to rest too. And what we learned over time was that by gradually increasing stress on the heart, we could heal it, we could make it better. And so what we've discovered is that resistance training in particular, slowly progressive resistance training is not only safe for women with and at risk for breast cancer-related lymphedema, it actually makes symptoms better and may prevent lymphedema from onset in the first place. Can you just briefly describe what is resistance training? Sure, you betcha. So resistance training would be, um, it's it progressive resistance training. So you would start with light weights. So you would be doing typical upper body weight training exercises like a chest press, or a, a rowing exercise for your back or shoulders or biceps or triceps. And you would do it with very light weights to begin with. And then a couple of weeks, assuming you don't have any symptom changes, you increase the weights. And then a couple of weeks later, assuming your symptoms don't change, you keep increasing the weights and you keep doing that for like six months. The whole idea behind it is that by six months into this kind of program, your lymphatic system has been rerouted in a nice way so that pretty much anything you do in your life isn't stressful to that arm anymore. So the analogy that I'll use is take two people who've just had a heart attack and, you know, let's say it snows where they are. And one of these people has slowly increased the stress on their heart by doing exercise on a regular basis. And the other one has not. They both go out to shovel snow. The one who has not done the exercise is more likely to have a second heart attack because they are stressing their heart too much with a daily activity. So the analogy with breast cancer-related lymphedema is women pick stuff up. I mean, just stop for a second and think we pick up children, we pick up boxes, we pick up suitcases, we pick stuff up, you know? So let's say you do nothing, you don't train that arm, it's at risk for lymphedema or you already have lymphedema, and then you decide to put your bicycle on top of your car. And then suddenly, whoops, your arm starts swelling up. On the other hand, if you do this slowly progressive strength training, six months into it, your arm can handle anything. 
So speaking of handling anything, you know, I recently had a, a loved one also go through uh, breast cancer. And one of the things that I just did not appreciate is that even once you've managed to beat back the cancer, gone into remission, you've gone through surgeries, chemo, radiation, the whole gamut, there's still this reconstructive surgery to consider. And I was so delighted to see a chapter devoted to that aspect because I I think it's, I mean, at least from my experience, it seems like we don't talk about it enough. It seems, you know, kind of elective in the end, right? And yet it's an important part of a person's cancer journey. Um, So tell us about reconstruction, you know, sort of why it's hard and, and, and what you found might make it a little bit easier. Right. So what if we're going to focus on breast cancer reconstruction, which is the majority of reconstruction that we have, and you know, that's, that's the most common um, done in cancer, it's complicated because there are often more than one surgery. And every surgery is a surgery, and there needs to be recovery from that surgery. And during recovery from that surgery, there is no lifting. There is no res- progressive resistance exercise. There is only walking. Until, you know, you are done with your stitches and you've been cleared by your surgeon. So one of the things that is really difficult for a lot of women, because it could be that you have, you know, three to five surgeries get through all of the reconstructive process after breast cancer, is that you are really still in the cancer process. I mean, on the hand, it's really nice because you're no longer focusing on your cancer. On the other hand, it's really not nice because you're still really focusing on your cancer, if that makes any sense. It does. No, that's exactly what I feel like we've been going through. It's like, well, she wants it to be over, but then there's this like other right. whole thing hanging around. Yeah. Right. I mean, it needs to be given its due. It is, although it is not cancer surgery, it's surgery. It's surgery. Surgery is surgery. And that means that you need to treat it like a serious surgery. And as a result, there is no lifting that happens for a little period of time. And so the focus goes to the aerobic exercise. You know, and then you start to build up your strength again with the res- progressive resistance training. But then you have to stop again when you're ready for the next, you know, the next surgery. So my Sarah went through five reconstructive surgeries on her nose. So this was very different situation than the, um, than the breast cancer reconstruction, except that it wasn't at all. What I hear from my colleagues who are physical therapists who work with women having breast reconstruction sounds awfully familiar to what happened in my household. And it really boils down to this sort of ebb and flow in your life where you feel like, okay, I'm not dealing with that right now. I'm done. I can live my life. And then whoops, here we go again. So aerobic exercise is is my recommendation during those time periods. So one of the things I noticed is that your title is the director of the Oncology, Nutrition, and Exercise Group at the Penn State Cancer Institute. And I know nutrition is yet another major topic. In fact, in some ways, I feel like the whole idea that you can either prevent or cure cancer by watching what you eat seems to have gotten so much more media attention than exercise in the past you know, couple decades. And so I wondered if you might speak to that. Um, especially because I did notice there was a part of your book where you talk about supplements and how they're dangerous at times. Yes. So there is a chapter uh, in the book on nutrition. And if you speak with someone who is a PhD trained nutritionist and who has read the literature deeply, they will tell you the truth is that uh, we know way less about what we should be recommending for patients 
during cancer treatment for food than we do about exercise. And it worked because it's so complicated. So what we have in the book are, you know, best uh, recommendations for, you know, the other thing is you have to eat. You don't actually have to exercise. You can actually go through your entire cancer journey and never move. You know, that is possible, but you can't go through it and not eat. And so there has to be something. And certainly people want to know that what they're doing with their food is not harming them in any way. And so supplements is something you pointed out. And I'll just take a second to say that there's a lot of energy around the idea of I need to do something for myself. The chemotherapy is great, but I need to do something for myself. I'm going to take this supplement. My naturopath thinks that this is an important thing for me to do. And I can tell you in my own household that what happened was we sent our list of here are the supplements that naturopath recommended. And we were told that Sarah could take none of them, not one. And they all had to do with the fact that the mechanism of action for every single one of the supplements was in conflict with the chemotherapy regimen that they had laid out for. Wow. I mean, do you think that people, you know, in your experience, do that kind of diligence where they bring the supplement list to their oncologist? Or do you find that a lot of this happens just in, you know, they they decide that that they don't want to trust just one person or one team with their care. And so they they take the, an alternate route and do it kind of incognito. I think there's a lot of incognito and the literature supports that. There actually have been surveys. The majority of cancer patients report that they have used supplements at some time during their cancer journey. And I really think that this is a public health announcement to say that it's actually pretty dangerous to be taking a supplement that your physician doesn't know about if you were in the process of undergoing chemotherapy or radiation, because there are a lot of supplements that are intended to very specifically work uh, as antioxidants. That's a very common type of supplement. And, you know, you may, you may be prescribed three or four different versions of that by a naturopath. Not, not slamming naturopaths. Naturopaths are great. They, you know, very knowledgeable. But I think that it's, uh, it's exceedingly important that, uh, that your listeners understand that there are chemotherapy agents that work on the entire basis of causing oxidation, that work on the very basis of altering the oxidative stress in the area where your tumor is in a way that will kill the tumor. And that if you are taking antioxidants while you are also taking that chemotherapy, you are making your chemotherapy less effective. I mean, putting it that way <laughs> makes it really clear, you know, why you need to go and talk to your oncologist about this. Um, because that, yeah, that's a very clear example of, of, of something that, you know, you maybe is counterintuitive and you wouldn't have expected. So I want to remind our listeners that Dr. Katherine Schmitz's book, uh, Moving Through Cancer, an exercise and strength training program for the fight of your life, empowers patients and caregivers in five steps, is available at booksellers everywhere. And it's really, you know, in, it's it's very much a kind of workshop or, you know, like a, it, it's an active document, I feel like, that you use and, and there's logs to fill out and sheets to fill out. And I know it, that makes it sound like work, but I actually think that just as we talked about earlier, what it's providing is, is a scaffold to make it doable, um, you know, to add this component exercise and strength training to a person's treatment. But I, I had one final question for you, which is that, you know, we know now that 
you know that 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 cancer it can is very specific. There's a you know there's a gene expression component that differs between individuals, and we're we're entering you know or we are in an era of sort of personalized medicine. And I wondered how you managed to thread the needle between providing a book that is useful information for a large audience, but also balancing the fact that everyone's journey is different and everyone's situation is different. So how did you make those kinds of decisions about what to include in the book and how to include them? Yeah. So scientists can find papers on topics that they're interested in by going to something called PubMed. And if you go to PubMed and your listeners can search for this on Google, um, you can search for exercise and cancer and find that there are over 20,000 peer-reviewed scientific publications on this topic. So with that in mind, the question then is, hmm, you know, who can I serve, you know, and, and that you're absolutely right, that there's going to be sort of with your implication in your question that there are going to be people for whom there needs to be more than what I have recommended. And there are going to be people for whom there needs to be less. I have very purposefully said in the book, do what you can. And so I am trying very much to speak to those for whom less than what I'm recommending is enough or is all they can get to. I am speaking much less to people who, for whom it may be true that doing a very specific regimen of exercise would potentiate their immunotherapy program, for example. And I very particularly didn't go there with that kind of specificity because the data don't go there. I am a scientist. Nothing in this book is from the top of mind. This is all based on peer-reviewed scientific evidence. And so there are studies, there are brilliant scientists out there who are doing uh, phase one trials to try to understand dose response effects of personalized exercise regimen for cancer patients with a variety of different, you know, immunotherapies and other chemotherapies to understand, you know, oh, okay, you have this particular genetic profile, you need to do a more aerobic exercise. Oh, you have this other genetic profile. Okay, let's have you do strength training. That's coming. That's coming. That kind of specificity is coming, but we're not there yet. Yeah. And I think that with all these online tools that we have and wearables that can track all kinds of physiological measures, we will get there. But in the meantime, we have your 21-day program that people can go through and um, improve their outcomes. So Dr. Katherine Schmitz, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much for having me. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. Catherine was kind enough to reschedule the interview at the last moment because my daughter kept me up all night coughing and I had to take her to the doctor to get a COVID test. She's fine, by the way. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank... David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rehala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Awald, Dale Lamaster, and Charles Blyle. This episode was edited by Daniel Link. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time.
legends are true. Overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.